Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, Poetry Editor of The New Yorker Magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Ellen Bass. A chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, she's received the Lambda Literary Award for Poetry, the Pablo Neruda Prize for Poetry, and fellowships from the California Arts Council and the National Endowment for the Arts. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So the poem you've decided to read for us is Cohogs by Frank X. Gaspar. Can you tell us why this particular poem caught your attention as you were looking through the archives? I love this poem for many reasons. One of them is it's so primal. It's so visceral. It brings us into one of the most basic human experiences, and I feel like I'm having that experience when I read the poem. Then I should say, just in case people aren't familiar, um, the title is Cohogs, and Cohogs, if you don't know, are large clams. Excellent. Uh, Let's hear the poem. This is Ellen Bass reading Cohogs by Frank X. Gaspar. Cohogs. It was for the wind as much as anything. It was for the tidal flats, for the miles of bars and the freezing runs between them, blued and darkened in the withering gusts, for the buckets, for the long-tined rakes, for our skin burning and the bones beneath all their ache, for the bent backs for the huddle toward warmth beneath our incapable layers, how we beat ourselves with our arms, the breath we blew, the narrow steam that spun away, how we searched their tell-draggle marks, then the feel of them as we furrowed, then it was surgery and force together, like stones, opal or pearl or plain rock, ugly except They were beautiful, their whorls and purple stains, the bucket's wire cutting with their weight, for the sky blazing, its sinking orange fire, for the sky's black streaks with night rising, winter sudden, back, shoreward, home, the tide creeping like a wolf, for the little stove warming its own orange fire, the old pot, the steam, the air and savor, the close room, the precious butter, the blue fingers throbbing, our bodies in all the customs of weariness, the supper, 
succulent of the freezing dark sea come up, and hunger, its own happiness, its own domain immeasurable. It was for the hunger. That was Cohogs by Frank X. Gaspar, which originally appeared in the January 11, 2016 issue of the magazine. So tell me more about this wonderful poem. I, I was thinking when you were reading it, you know, it's worthy of, of note that you really capture, I think, the rolling quality. I mean, it feels like one big breath. But there's something also for me about poetry in that. It, it's both a poem of, of discovery, but also a poem about poetry in some way, about the making of poetry and ars poetica. I'm so glad that you said that because the more I was reading this poem and thinking about talking here, that's exactly on my notes what I wrote down, Ars Poetica. It does feel exactly like that process of writing a poem, of searching, of describing and describing until you come to something that you didn't know you were going to come to exactly like that. And I love the music of the poem and the sound. And uh, Frank Espar is a master of sound and really works through sound and moves the poem forward through sound. And that wonderful repetition, of course, of it was for, Mm -hmm. which is such a strange and wonderful way to to start this poem. Right, right. you know, it was for the wind as much as anything. <laughs> what? Where? You know, we're immediately, right. immediately in the experience. And uh, the way that that repetition just drives the poem forward mm-hmm. and has that force of moving through the music of the poem, I love so much. And I love, I love how primal this poem is. This is something people have been doing for, you know, a thousand years, more. I don't know how long. Uh, Millennia. Millennia, (laughs) exactly. And um, the more I read the poem, the more I think about how it's a poem without judgment. Mm. that there's adversity here. Mm. They're, they're cold and and they're hungry. And there's a we in the poem. I'll yeah. just stop. He's yes, not doing it alone. Yeah, I want to get to the we in a moment, but keep, yeah. keep going. So somebody else might think, I love doing this. I hate doing this. But he is beyond judgment in this poem. It's, it's deeply rooted in the world. Mm. And I think that really works with the Ars Poetica, too, because that's what we're trying to do in poetry is to get more, or at least what I'm trying to do, get, get more deeply rooted into the experience, into the world, and see then what we discover. And it made me think of um, Galway Cannell's line, um, whatever what is, is, is what I want. And I feel that in this poem, that he just wants it all. And that wonderful line, I love that line about the ugly. That is literally what I've underlined here. Ugly, except they were beautiful. Yes. Their whorls and purple stains. Yes. You know, and that to me is like so much of our experience, which we you know, poetry, we're, you're talking a little bit, and this poem is a little bit about what poetry's for. And one thing is to talk about that line. You know, uh, often the things that fascinated us, the sublime, rides that line. Absolutely. And, and poetry is able to, of course, name things that we might otherwise miss or, or dismiss um, as worthy of note. So what about this we? 
I mean, obviously, in some way, it's all of us. But yes. but what, is there a specific way you feel? I mean, it's probably his family or he and you know his cohorts. But it's it's a communal way, uh. and that feels so primal too. You know, I can't imagine that. A thousand years ago, people didn't do this together. Mm-hmm. So often we don't experience it because we eat alone or, or we're in our little uh, yes. you know, boxes or houses or mm-hmm. places mm-hmm. or wherever if we're fortunate enough to have such. But he, he's letting you know the, the labor that goes oh, into yes. the, the achieving what is this kind of brief glory at the end. Our bodies and all the customs of weariness. Yeah. I mean, that's a great phrase. I know. The Isn't supper, it? succulent of the freezing dark sea come up. And I love how once they get into the warm kitchen with the steam and the, uh, the close stove room. and the close room, that the freezing dark sea is introduced. Mm-hmm. It's, it's brought into the warm. And there's so many of these um, opposites that are connected. You know, there's the steam in the beginning of his breath, Mm. and then in the end, the steam in the room. And then he repeats that orange fire. Uh, You know, first it's the sinking orange fire of the sun going down, and then it's the little stove warming its own orange fire. So the outside and the inside are so connected in this poem. And the part that really makes me think about poetry is when he says, then it was surgery and force together. (laughs) Right. That's a good definition of it. Yes. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah. And I I think also hunger. I mean, I think when I was uh, first writing, I thought, oh, if I could ever be, you know, like good enough to write the poems I want to write. But um I think that was really good for me because it, A, gave me a sense of hunger. And then now, looking back, it wasn't simply talent that got one there. It's really that hunger and that drive. And I, you know, sometimes see uh, writers who are very talented and then not so hungry. And I'll bet on the hungry kid every time who is really eager to find and soak up everything and knows they're not quite as good. You know, that, that that makes you better, I think. Well, it's certainly my experience because I didn't start out looking all that promising. <laughs> and I'm 72. And it's, it's, of course, it's still a journey. Sure. It's not like I've arrived somewhere. <laughs> but I have been able to um, make poems that satisfy me more than I was able to when I started out at 20. Yeah. And that's, it's been a long journey for me, and it's been driven by that hunger and that work. And so I, I relate to that a lot. How did that start? I know you had some early teachers that were important. I did. I, I began writing in college, and I had a wonderful mentor who I'm actually visiting with right now as I'm in New York, Florence Howell, who is the co-founder of the Feminist Press, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, the longest-running women's press in the world. Wonderful. And um, she encouraged me, and she did it in a way that I look back on now and I think is absolutely brilliant. I wrote a little essay, and what she wrote on it was, you like to write. (laughs) What a great way to put it. Oh, my God, because, and actually talking about this poem, Beyond Judgment, not good, not bad, 
she was just, you like to write. And she saw that hunger in me. Yeah, yeah. And I love that quality of the beyond judgment that's in this poem, the pure description. And who else did you study with? Well, I studied with Anne Sexton at Boston University the first year that she was teaching, which was 1969 to 1970. And she was also a crucial teacher for me. At that time, I was... Again, not showing much promise, but hunger. Yeah. I wanted it. And my other professors, uh, you have to think back, this is quite a while, mm-hmm. really didn't know how to teach the young woman who I was. Mm. And also the teaching of the craft wasn't like it was today. Mm-hmm. Mostly I was told, if there was one, this is a good line, uh, and and more than that, I was told, take this out, take this out, take this out. Right. So my not very good poems were whittled down to to little things that were even less good. You know, whatever life <laughs> there was in them. Whatever anything. Whatever breath or little bit of life was in them was just smashed out. And the main thing that I remember Anne saying is write more, expand. Just uh, let the largeness come out. Let the expansion come out. And I think if I hadn't had her, I would have given up. That's incredible. Um, And, you know, a longtime New Yorker contributor, someone who, of course, whose work is, you know, I read as a young person myself and was really turned on by, stunned by, you know, turned into some ideas. Oh, you could write poetry that was kind of visceral. Yeah, You're talking about Primal with this poem, but Sexton had that kind of ability to be so visceral and blunt. You know, some would critique that, but that's also her strength, of course. And she so much opened up women's experience. Uh, um, I mean, Muriel Rookeiser, I think, was the first to start, you know, writing about something like breastfeeding and... um, being a lesbian mm-hmm. and um, having children and the domestic life, sure. you know, the, the body, woman's body. But then, you know, when, when Anne started writing, you know, the, her poem in celebration of her uterus, I don't think the word uterus had ever, <laughs> had ever appeared in poetry before. Um, well, I think what's interesting, you know, to me around the same time, it's almost like the development of DNA. You have someone like Lucille Clifton who's writing in praise of her hips and writing yes. about the body yes. uh, as a celebratory thing. But yes. Sexton is so, as you said, crucial. In and then one. she's the empress of metaphor. Mm. And that was the one strength that I had. I naturally think in it. So whenever I'm talking to somebody, I'm always saying, well, it was like, well, it was like, and especially if I'm trying to convince them of something, you <laughs> right, know, sure. and somebody says, you know, I don't get what you're saying. I go, oh, yeah, well, well it's like this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, and that comes naturally to me. Um, and nobody, I don't think, I mean, Sharon Olds uh, makes the most uh, amazing similes and, um so I think, you know, that's a, a kind of a lineage. I, you know, I'm, I love that you're talking about metaphor because, especially in this poem, the metaphors kind of are subtle in, in Quahog's, where he says, like stones. Yes. You know, and you're like, oh. Don't you love that? <laughs> and yes. then they open up, opal or pearl or plain rock, ugly except 
break, they were beautiful. Right. And so they are literally transforming because to me, metaphor is about transformation and connection. You know, across time and space, these two seemingly quite different things are really actually not just like each other, but often they're the same. Yes. And here you see the, the poem go from stones to conjuring to opal or pearl or plain rock. He doesn't say they're like those things. Suddenly that's what they are. Right. And, of course, rock is, is rockier than a stone is. And, and so they, they, they get kind of uglier too. You know, it goes from, it goes from stones to opal, you know, pretty nice, shiny, luminescent, and then pearl, like this thing that uh, the cousin to the quahog has in oysters. And, you know, suddenly then they're back to plain rock. Yes. Ugly. Yes. Uh, except... The one metaphor that he really presents in a traditional metaphoric way, the tide creeping like a wolf, I think is really interesting because there's that, again, primal, the threat, right? The, you know, I'm making little a red face. <laughs> the, yeah, little red riding hood. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the wolf <laughs> is, is um, that thing that we... Uh, protect ourselves from. Sure. And, and if you see one, it looks so different. You know, there's this weird thing that goes in your bones. Um, you know, like you see one and you go, wait, that's not a dog. And you have this weird reaction. Uh, you know, we're talking, we're on the brink of life meeting death, you know, and that's yes. what I think he's uh, yes. conjuring for us. Right. And if we don't eat... We die. Yeah, and if and if the earth eats us, yeah, <laughs> the wolf or the water. The wolf, yeah. <laughs> we we got to get that food before the wolf comes. You yeah. know, before the tide comes. Yeah. And I just love them when he gets to that ending. It was for the hunger. Mm. It's not recreational. It's it's necessity. There's something about it that it mirrors the experience. To me, the best poems enact what they're talking about. They don't describe. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, talk about your poem, shall we? Yes. Now, in the June 24th, 2019 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Because, which we'll hear you read shortly. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about it before we hear it? Actually, because we've been talking about Frank Gaspar, I'll just start mentioning that he often tells his students, feed your mind. And I'm sure he means to read great literature, read nonfiction. But in in this poem, what fed my mind was a television show that had no value in that kind of way, but did for me. uh, There was a series, not a great series, called This Is Us. Yeah. Still on, I think, This Is Us. Is it still on? Yes, yes. And in it, there's a character, I actually love this character, who had a mental breakdown, a nervous breakdown, mm. and went temporarily blind. Mm. And in this poem, as you'll hear when I read it, that happens. And I had never seen or heard of any other person oh. who had had this experience. And my ex-husband had this experience. Wow. And it's that way in which it's so important for us to see ourselves named and reflected, our experience named and reflected, before we can quite know what it is. And when I saw that on TV, I went, I can write this poem. Wonderful. Well, let's hear it. This is Ellen Bass reading her poem, Because. Because. Because the night I gave birth, my husband went blind. 
hysterical, I guess you'd call it, because there'd been too many people, and then there was no one, only this small creature, her tiny cry no bigger than a sequin. Because I'd been pushing too many hours, even with her soft skull plates shifting, the collar of my bones too slender. When I reached down, I could feel the wet wisps of hair of this being living inside me, but her heart was weakening. The midwife told me not to push on the way to the hospital, but I pushed anyway. This was California in the 70s, and I'd have pushed until I died. The doctor asked for permission to cut my perineum. So polite, as though he were requesting the pleasure of the next dance. Then he slid in forceps skillfully, not a scratch on her temples. But we left that haven the same night because my husband didn't believe in hospitals. The baby, naked, wrapped only in a blanket, because we both believed in skin to skin. Because the baby cried, but wouldn't suck. Because when I started to stand, I started to faint, so I had to crawl to the sterile diapers and pale yellow sleeper folded inside the brown paper bag I'd baked in the oven. Because I'm still there on my hands and knees, deflated belly and ripe breasts, huge dark nipples, tearing open the stapled bag, fumbling the ducky pins. Two fingers slipped between the baby's belly and the thick layers of cotton, the sharp point. The baby, a stranger, yet so strangely familiar, flecks of blood still stuck to her scalp. Because my husband slept beside me, and I let him sleep, because it would be years before I left him. Now love and grief would be greater than I ever imagined, rooted together like north and south, over and under, because I too had been pushed out into another world. I lay there with the baby whimpering in my arms, both of us wide awake in the darkness. That was Because by Ellen Bass. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. 
and we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk about enacting. You you really are enacting for us this this process, uh, the ultimate creation. You know, the ultimate poem, as it were. Tell us more about that. I mean, was that the the because the repetition come first, or um, I knew that I would have to do something in this poem so that it didn't sound like I'm telling you my sad birth story, and it was the because that allowed me to write the poem. And I actually modeled it on Frank Aspar's poem. I just loved his um, It Was Four. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I couldn't say it was four because he had already done that. And um, but, but because it's such a, uh, a phrase people use, you know, like, why did you do that? Because on its own, it has its own kind of... It has a, a kind of propulsion mm. that... You're waiting, uh, you know, because this, then that. And I was really worried as I wrote this poem. You know, part of my brain and self was writing the poem, and the other part was going, what are you going to say? You know, what is is the that going to be that that is the because this, then that? And I didn't know. And, of course, that's the best place to be in writing a poem. That's the place that... I strive for is to enter into the place where I don't know anymore and um, and hope that I will discover something. But this was more obvious mm. than in some poems because sure. I, I was doing this because. And it's interesting what you just said really made me think of that, you know, why, because, because there's so many unanswered whys in this poem. Mm. Um, You know, why is this woman with this person who's going to go hysterically blind and then go to sleep on her? And then she's going to have to... And why'd she stay all those years? I mean, it's all these whys that can't be answered in the poem. But I think... I, I never articulated that to myself until you just said that. Yeah. But I, Aren't poems tricky that way? <laughs> yeah, you find out more about them from the reader, always. <laughs> right, right, um, right. And about oneself, too, I find. You know, like, as you're saying, there's a discovery for the poet as well as the, the reader or Very listener. Very much. And here, to me, it happens both at the end. I lay there with the baby whimpering in my arms. But also in this, this stanza of few before, now love and grief would be greater than I ever imagined. And that, that way that suddenly the speaker has come into a knowledge, I think there's something really powerful about that notion that suddenly there's this future. I think that's the, the, the brilliance of how you've set the poem, which is aware of uh, what's going to be. It's a poem of looking back and of wisdom, but it also is is gentle toward that earlier self that uh, doesn't know. Yes, I as I not when I was writing the poem, but afterward when I really looked at the poem, it seemed to me that yes, maybe my birth story is sadder than some people's birth stories, but everybody is 
kind of pushed into this other world when they become a parent. Yeah. And I think that's the universality of it. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the um, way this situates sort of in others of your poems. Other poems of yours, I think, write about this more grown daughter, if, if we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. But also, as we were talking with the other poem, about the kind of visceral experience of, of life and death. You know, you make a diaper change into the most dramatic, scary <laughs> uh, uh, thing, you know, and, and even if you don't know and haven't done v- diapers with safety pins. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the ducky pins, great phrase. And, you know, the care that the speaker who surely is bewildered and you you convey that, but is, is taking to make sure not to harm uh, this little baby. You know, sometimes people ask you how long it takes you to write a, a poem, and this poem took me 40 years. 40. And wow. And I wasn't working on this poem directly for 40 years, sure. but I had written a million poems about um, my daughter and early life and my ex-husband and uh, all of the complications, and they pretty much all failed because I didn't have both the perspective and also the craft. And somehow they all came together uh, when I watched This Is Us and I thought about this use of the uh, repetition of because. And the other thing that happened that allowed me was I had been listening to uh, recordings of the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. And he talked about how our language is so odd that up has no meaning unless there is down. These dualities are actually so integrated that Mm. you can't separate them from each other. Sure. And that really just hit nerves in me the way that he talked about it. Otherwise, I couldn't have done anything with this experience Mm. unless I could get to that um, love and grief being rooted together like north and south over and under. And I think that was the discovery of the poem. It's very subtle, though. You know, I think that's what's interesting is, to me, the best poems have, it's like a soup, you know, that, and a good cook puts a lot of different stuff in there that I, you know, or where I come from, you'd say they put their foot in it, you know, Um, and that's a good thing. You know, it has to have some of the body in it. Um, Were you thinking about that in terms of the body here? Because I do think there's also a, a reclamation of that. Uh, kind of tradition we're talking about and thinking about things that aren't always in poems. Yes. I think that when I write, I don't feel much hesitation ever about putting something in a poem. I think I'm just lucky that way. Uh, You know, I never think to myself, oh, I shouldn't say, you know, my huge dark nipples or something like that. Or, you know, this doesn't belong in a poem, whatever it might be. And when I was thinking about talking about this poem with Frank's poem, they're both so much of the body. Mm-hmm. And and then I was thinking about just they're both so primal. But I think that what's fascinating here is how much you make poetic out of, you know, perineum and these parts of 
speech that we don't even talk about in daily life. You know, there was, I think, this divide between the daily, the everyday, let's say, and the poem, which the modern poets tried to collapse, and I think largely did. But here you're also uh, going into things that we don't always talk about even in daily life to ourselves. And I think that's what's really powerful about poetry, and especially in this moment. I think you hear poets writing about things that I've never seen that in a poem still. I mean, it's amazing after, you know, a millennia. That's um, exciting. Yeah. And I think I had a lot of permission early on because of all these poets who you're, you're naming. And maybe because uh, I was on the West Coast, too. And there was an uh, an up and a down <laughs> side to that. Yeah. You know, the downside was that I wasn't in as much contact with other poets and the inspiration and the stimulation of other poets. I was in Santa Cruz, California, and there were some poets, but it wasn't like being in New York City. Sure. Um, so there, there was a downside, but I think the up was that I I wasn't really getting the kind of feedback that maybe I might have gotten uh, critical feedback that I could kind of do a lot whatever I wanted. I wanted to ask you really quick about the California that's in the poem. You say this was California in the 70s. Um, how important was it to locate us in the poem? Well, I think that natural childbirth uh, in California in the 70s was like a religion. And I wanted to birth this baby naturally so much that I couldn't even um, take in that it was important for us to get to a hospital before the baby was born. So that's part of that. And also, maybe some readers might wonder, what is this paper bag being baked in an oven for? And um, that was to sterilize the diapers and the little sleeper thing that you were going to put on the baby is that you put it in a brown paper bag, you stapled it closed, and you baked it in a low heat in the oven to sterilize it. Wow. I bet those staples were were fun to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Hot staples from an oven. Well, they had cooled off by then. No, you baked it in advance. Yes, yes, You didn't put the baby in there either. Um, But it also is a kind of metaphor, I think. You know, the the baking in the oven, it's almost a cliche. A bun. A bun, right, (laughs) a bun. Yes, right. But also I think there's, there's something about you talking about the rituals yes. uh, that I think is important for the poem and also for the memory. And I think, as you said, the 40-year distance really shows in that way that things that, you know, this isn't how exactly uh, things are always done. And, you know, uh, I think that's really important to for people to understand that there are cultural things around yes. birth and, and traditions, but at the same time you're getting at the kind of primal. And that kind of intermix, I think, is really uh, why the poem feels so specific and so part of you, but also part of this human experience. It's interesting that you're talking about time and that distance, because also time was a little bit challenging to handle in the poem, because I don't tell things exactly in chronological order. And I had to start with uh, my husband going hysterically blind, because as you said, you know, that kind of sets it up. And then I have to kind of go back and forth. When I first wrote the poem, that line, because I'm still there on my hands and knees, originally I wrote it because she's still there 
on her hands and knees, really looking back Mm. at that younger self and making more of a distance. And then I realized that, no, I'm still there. Mm. That's a powerful leap. And again, I, I think it's important that it's enacting. And, you know, if you're reading, you might not have had this experience. Of course, you've not had this exact experience, no matter who you are. And I think we've all had some version of because there'd been too many people and then there was no one. Only. You know, that here is childbirth, but I think is is about that larger love and grief that is knitted together in so many experiences. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Because by Ellen Bass, as well as Frank X. Gaspar's Co-Hogs, can be found on NewYorker.com. Frank X. Gaspar's latest book is The Poems of Renata Ferrara. Ellen Bass will publish a new collection, Indigo, in April. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.